0: I'm really not trying to return the favor, but um, I just want to tell you that you as a church uh, are really graced uh, by God to have Josh Knight as your pastor. Uh, being around him, uh, clearly he loves uh, the Lord with, his, with all his heart, and being around uh, him and watching him interact with Desiree and, and Winston and Haddon, uh, he, just, he loves his family really, really well. And to hear him talk about you, he loves this church. And uh, you're really blessed to have him as a pastor. I think I said everything you gave me, Josh. Yeah. Um, I did. You're strikingly handsome. I left it out right there. Got it. All right. <clears throat> I mean that with all my heart. He is strikingly handsome. All right, turn to Colossians. Colossians chapter 1 on page 572 of the Bible that's there um, under your chair if you need one. And if you don't have a Bible, you're free to take that with you. Um, And Josh said, You can have anything else you want. Uh, He'll give you the shirt off his back. He's just that generous. Uh, So, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. It's a great joy to get to contribute to your series on only Jesus. Uh, So, let's uh, pick up verse 15 here. He, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you've heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Thanks be to God for his word. Uh, In your life, you and I are going to ascribe weight and significance to certain things. And there's one thing that's going to get more weight and more worth in your life than anything else. There's something in your life that's going to get more attention from you than anything else gets. There's going to be something that gets the best of who you are. It's going to have the strongest pull on your heart. And the most important thing for you, the key to your happiness, is making sure that that one thing is the right thing. Because if you value what is not objectively supremely valuable, now don't miss this, if you do not value supremely the thing that is ob- objectively supremely valuable, you're not going to live in step with ultimate reality and flourish as a human being. In other words, if you don't give yourself to the thing that really is the greatest thing in this universe, then you're going to actually live out of step with ultimate reality and sabotage your own life and your own joy. So what I want you to get this morning is that you, if you're gonna be happy, if you're gonna live in step with ultimate reality, if you're gonna flourish as a human being, then you must with your life glorify most what is most glorious. You must love supremely that thing that is supremely lovely and you must value supremely that thing that is supremely valuable. And if you don't, it's what, it's what some theologian calls ordering your loves. If you don't love most what's most lovely, you'll be out of step with ultimate reality and you'll end up sabotaging your own life and your own joy. In other words, the joy you're going to get out of life comes from the thing you're loving most in life. And if you want the fullness of joy in life, you have to love fully the most important thing in the universe. Now, let's, listen to how one theologian talked about this, St. Augustine. Now, a man named David Nagel wrote a book called Reordered Loves, Reordered Lives. And he basically made the point that if you get your loves out of order, if you love the wrong things too much and the right things too little, don't miss that. If you love the wrong things too much and you love the right things too little and your loves are disordered, you're going to have a disordered life. And so in this book, he interacts with St. Augustine and some of the things that he said. St. Augustine lived in the 300s. Now, listen, listen to how Noggle says this. Now, it's kind of, listen, this is kind of heady, but you live in Utah. You're smart people, all right? In Texas, I'm like, sound it out, sound it out, all right? You can do this. Here's what it says. According to Augustine, there is a scale of value stretching from earthly "...to heavenly realities, from the visible to the invisible, and the inequality between these goods makes possible the existence of them all." So there's like a scale of value from... uh, When you look at everything that exists, there's a scale of value to those things that exist. And then he gives an example. God is one thing. Angels are another, as are people. Terriers, red oaks, squash, rocks, and dirt. Each item fits in God's overall scheme of creation." The nature of things in the hierarchy is unchangeable. Dog's always a dog, terrier's always a terrier, red red oak is always a red oak, squash is always a squash. The nature of things is unchangeable. And so is the kind of satisfaction it can provide when we are related to it through love. Because of these actual differences in things, the outcome of loving each actual thing will be different. In other words, the outcome of loving a squash is going to be a little different than the outcome of loving a human being. Because of these actual differences in things, the outcome of loving each uh, actual thing will be different. There's a divinely designed fit between our needs, the character of the things that can satisfy them, and the way we should love them in order to be satisfied. Even though each thing God has made is good, delightful, legitimate, and a source of satisfaction as an object of our love. In other words, everything God's made is good, and it provides a measure of satisfaction when you love it rightly. It's just this, we must not expect more from it than its unique nature can provide. We must give love and praise to things apportioned to their worth. Don't expect more out of something than its unique nature can provide. We must give love and praise to things apportioned to their worth. Apportioned to their worth. Let me give you an example of this. I have a friend named John married to a wonderful woman named Ruth. And Ruth loves living in the country. One day she calls John. He's at work. She calls John. She says, John, thank you that we live in the country. I'm in the garden, and I have a handful of dirt, and I'm smelling it, and it's glorious. So he put her in counseling, and she, uh, no, she did am I have a handful of dirt. I'm smelling it, and it's glorious. In other words, she's finding a great joy and delight in what God has made. God has made this soil, and, and just being outside, being in this soil, holding this dirt, smelling it, brings her a bit of joy. But listen, I guarantee she got more joy out of holding in her hands her newborn child and smelling the scent of a baby. I guarantee. Why? Because the unique nature of a baby is able to give you more joy when you love it then dirt can give you joy when you love it. Its unique nature is totally different. So are you with me on that? Everything that exists has a unique nature and can provide a certain amount of joy when you love that thing rightly. But if you love something too much, and, but its unique nature is not capable of giving you the joy and satisfaction that it's meant to give, you're going to live life disappointed. Does that make sense? And so the truth is, if you give more weight to things than they are built to bear, you're going to end up being miserable, and you're going to actually end up hating those things because they failed your expectations. There are parents who are bitter at their grown children because their children were not able to give them the kind of satisfaction and joy they were expecting. They put too high expectations, and they ended up being, they ended up being failed, unmet expectations. If you give more weight to things than they are built to bear, listen, only God can bear the weight of being God. No one else can do that for you. No one else can bear that weight. So if you look to anything else and expect it to be God to you, you are going to be disappointed in that thing. And listen, you're going to end up hating it because it failed your expectations. But even worse than that, those things are going to be, end up hating you because they were crushed under the weight of your expectations. Are you with me? So we have to learn to love rightly the things in this world. I cannot love things too much, nor love things too little, and the difference is what their unique nature consists of. We can't love the wrong things too much and can't love the right things too little. Now, Paul is showing us in this passage where you're like, what does it have to do with Colossians? I'm getting there. Paul shows us in this passage that we just read what is the one thing in the universe that you should give the most weight to in your life. The one thing in the universe that should have the greatest pull on your heart. The one thing on the scale of being that sits at the top of the chain, top of the food chain. The one thing that if you're gonna order your loves rightly, this love needs to be at the very top. Paul tells us who it is. It's the person of Jesus Christ. He says, Look, if, you, if you're gonna have something in your life that has the greatest pull on your heart and stakes a claim to your highest affections, it needs to be Jesus of Nazareth. It needs to be Jesus Christ because there's no one like him in all the universe and nothing like him in all the universe. And so I wanna show you four things why Jesus needs to be the greatest love. If you order your loves rightly, if you're going to love most what's most lovely, that, that love is the person of Jesus. And here's what I want you to see, four things. Number one, why should Jesus be at the top? Because of the person that he is. Notice what Paul says about him in verse 15. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The image of the invisible God. Now this word image in the Greek text is the word icon. We get our word Icon from that. See how I did that? Went to seminary for that. (laughs) We get our word icon from that. What the word means when it says the image of God, the icon of God, it's talking about two things. One, likeness. It's saying that Jesus is of the same essence of the Father. This is why Jesus said things like this. Like, I and the Father are one. We're of the same essence. This is the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. One God and three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God in three divine yet distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus, God the Son, has the same essence, the same substance as the Father. He told Thomas, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So when we see likeness, we're talking about Jesus having the same essence as the Father. But then it also speaks, icon also speaks of manifestation. This is a visible thing. An icon is visible. He is the image of the invisible God. In other words, Jesus reveals the Father. Jesus manifests the Father to us. I want you to turn back to the Gospel of John. Look at John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Listen to John's, in John's prologue as he describes Jesus on page 517. He says, in the beginning was the Word. He's speaking of Jesus who... Is, is God's Word to us, reveals God to us. In the beginning was the Word, and, and the Word was with God. So God the Son was with God the Father. And the Word, speaking of God the Son, was fully God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. Now look at verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. calls Jesus here, the only God, in other words, sharing the same essence of the Father, Jesus has revealed the Father. Jesus has manifested the Father to us. So what is this saying about Jesus? It's saying that He is God the Son who has revealed to us what God the Father is like. That's why it says in Colossians 1:19 that all the fullness of deity dwelt in him bodily. So Jesus could say, "If you've seen me, you've seen the Father." In other words, the Father, God the Father is a Jesus-like God as you look at Jesus and see the compassion of Jesus that's what the Father is like, you see the love of Jesus that's what the Father is like you see the sympathy of Jesus, that's what the Father is like, you see the tenderness of Jesus, that's what the Father is like, you see the purity and holiness and righteousness and justice of Jesus, that's what the Father is like, he's manifested God the Father to us it Says he's the image of God but also it says that he is the firstborn of all creation Now, this word firstborn is not speaking that Jesus was somehow born or created. Remember, he's of the same essence of the Father. He created all things, Colossians says. When it says firstborn, it's talking about two things. One, that he's first. In other words, he's before everything else. That's what he says here. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. So Jesus is first. He's before everything else in all of creation. And in fact, everything was made by him whether invisible or visible, thrones, dominions, or powers, they're all made by Him and for His glory and His purposes. So Jesus is before all things. He's first, but He's also foremost. This word carries the idea of preeminence. That's the language that Paul uses, that He's above everything else, that He is fully God and He has uncontested authority and power, that there's no one like Jesus. He has no equal. No one can stand toe-to-toe with Him. No one can stand eye-to-eye with Him. He's unmatched. He's unrivaled. He's in a class all by Himself. He is the foremost, the preeminent one, first place in all things. Now, when Jesus walked the earth, that reality was somewhat hidden. This Jesus, who is fully God, clothed in flesh, manifesting the Father, who is before all things and above all things. That was a very hidden realities he walked among us on the earth. And the best way I can try to explain this is by giving you a little bit of Texas history. So hope you can handle this. How many of you here know who Nolan Ryan is? Anyone? Anyone? Okay, a few of us. All right, great. So I I got some work to do this morning, all right? So Nolan Ryan is one of the greatest pitchers to ever play the game of baseball. Pitched for the Houston Astros, finished his career at the Texas Rangers. One of my heroes growing up. Nolan Ryan was the, one of the best pitchers to ever play the game. Over 5,000 strikeouts, no one's touched that record. Seven no-hitters, no one's touched that record. Over 300 wins, Hall of Fame first ballot. In his prime, was clocked throwing over 100 miles an hour in the ninth inning. So he was pitching the entire game in the ninth inning. He's still throwing high cheddar at 90 miles an hour. All right, That's Nolan Ryan. Now I want you to imagine for a moment Nolan Ryan in his prime pitching batting practice to five-year-olds? What would that look like? Would Nolan Ryan stare down little Johnny and say, Johnny, get your bat and get the box? Little Johnny trembling up there, walks into the batter's box, and Nolan Ryan just rears back and throws three 100-mile-an-hour fastballs right by little Johnny. Maybe he's crowding the plate. Nolan Ryan throwing chin music at little Johnny. Is that what he's going to do? No, he's not going to do that. He's going to say, okay, Johnny, I want you to see the ball. I want you to hit the ball. And he's going to lob it up there and let little Johnny make contact. Now, if little Johnny gets a hit off of Nolan Ryan in practice, he can't go to school the next day and strut his stuff and say, hey, you know, Nolan Ryan, yeah, he's washed up. I got a hit off of him in practice yesterday. Because at any given moment, Nolan Ryan could rear back and throw a 100-mile-an-hour fastball right by little Johnny and watch him lose all control of bodily functions and cry for mom. He could do that if he wanted to. So when Nolan Ryan pitches batting practice to five-year-olds, it is not that somehow all of a sudden Nolan Ryan has been reduced. It is not Nolan Ryan reduced. It's Nolan Ryan restrained. And when God the Son took on flesh and walked among us as Jesus of Nazareth, it was not God reduced. He wasn't a God starter kit. He wasn't God junior. He wasn't kind of like God. He wasn't God reduced in any way. Jesus walking on planet Earth was God restrained. It was, it was Him making contact with us. Him revealing the Father to us. Restra- it was deity restrained. Now, there were certain times in the life and ministry of Jesus where he, in, in a sense, reared back and threw a fastball. And everyone got their radar guns out and clocked it and said, only one person can throw like this. This must be God. Remember, Jesus is in the boat with his friends on the Sea of Galilee. I've been there. It's a remarkable place. It's this beautiful, uh, beautiful, huge lake called the Sea of Galilee, surrounded by mountains. I took a boat ride across it one time. It was super expensive, uh, which could explain why Jesus walked that one time. I'm just guessing. I'm just, I'm just making a stab at it. But the wind can hit those mountains and just swirl up the Sea of Galilee and cause a massive storm. Jesus in a boat with his 12 buddies. The storm hits. They think they're going to die. Many of these guys grew up on the Sea of Galilee, but this storm is a storm like no other. And so they are gripping the sides of the boat till the knuckles are turning white. Their teeth clenched against the wind. Water bailing into the the boat. They're bailing bucketfuls out. More water's coming in. And they wake. Jesus is asleep. You know when he's asleep? Listen very closely. This is very important. I don't know if you're, t- do they take notes? Do, do you people take notes? Take some notes. Here's why Jesus is sleeping. Jesus is asleep in the boat in that moment because he was tired. Just Right? Just tired. The reason he's tired is because he's fully man. He's been healing and teaching and preaching all day. He's exhausted. He's tired. But he's about to do something only God can do. And they wake him up and they say, don't you care that we're perishing which is why he's actually there. He stepped to the foot of the boat. He says, to the wind and the waves, peace, be still. And the wind stopped and the sea became like glass. And they got out the radar guns and they said, who is this that the wind and the waves obey him? The answer, ding, God. We're in a boat with God. And then it said, and they feared with a great fear because now they realize there's something in the boat even greater than the storm, right? There was a widow of Nain, the city of Nain. She had a son, he died. She's left all alone now, which means puts her in a very vulnerable position, no one to care for her. She's going to be left to abject poverty. And here she is coming down the street. She's weeping. Her only son that she loves is dead. Jesus stops the funeral procession, touches the coffin, says to the dead boy, get up. And the child sits up and starts talking to his mother. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen that at a funeral before, but that would freak you out. Right? You come by, it's the viewing of the body. Some guy just pops up, hey, what's up? Right? That would freak you out. The boy is, he, Jesus raises him from the dead. And here's what the people said. They worshiped and they said, surely God has visited his people this day. They didn't even know what they were saying. God was in their midst. This is God in the flesh. Je- Jesus, there's a, a paralytic who, his friends, they can't even get into the house, so they tear up the roof. They lower him down. Jesus sees their faith and says to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven. And the religious leaders are really offended by that because who can forgive sins but only God? This guy is claiming to be God. And Jesus says, what's, what's harder to say, your sins are forgiven or take up your pallet and walk? In other words, which of those things could you actually test to, to, to tell if they came true? I mean, you could blanketly throw out your sins are forgiven. How do you test that? But if you throw out the words, rise, take up your pallet and walk, you can test that, right? Jesus says, what's harder to say, your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk? And Jesus said, so that you know the Son of Man has, for, has the authority to forgive sins, I say to you, take up your mat and walk, and the young man gets up. The question was, only God has authority to forgive sins, and Jesus is saying, that's right, only God has the authority to forgive sins. Your sins are forgiven. Jesus is God in the flesh, and there's no one like him. And if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. If you want to know what God is like, just look at Jesus. And when you see him, you will see there's no one like him. He's uncontested, unrivaled, unmatched, and there is no one worthy of first place in your heart like him. But I I want you to see the second reason. Not just the person he is, but the work that he's done. Jesus didn't come to this earth just to throw fastballs and impress us. Listen to what else it says about him. Verse 20, verse 21. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he's now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. What did Jesus come to do? He came to reconcile us to the Father. Here's how Paul describes the human condition apart from grace, apart from God's salvation, We are born hostile in our minds and hearts towards God. Scriptures call us enemies of God in our own minds. That we've declared war on God, fired the first shot at God. We've not loved Him with our, our whole heart, mind, and strength like He deserves to be loved. We've not honored Him as He deserves to be honored, glorified Him as He deserves to be glorified. We've not treated Him as God. We've treated Him as less than God. We've rebelled against His commands. We've sinned against Him by the things that we've done and by the things that we've left undone. And so because of that, the Scripture says, because of our sin, because of our rebellion, our hostility, we've been alienated from God. We are separated from God and we are under His just condemnation. And God in his love and mercy has chosen not to leave us in that condition, but to send his son from his side to come here and reconcile us back to the Father. How? By actually taking our sin upon himself and bearing the judgment and punishment for them. We were alienated from God, but through the work of Christ, we can be reconciled to God, be brought into an intimate relationship with God the Father. We can be be brought back home and know the God we're made for. But this is done only through the work of Jesus. It's not done by our works. It's done by His. It's not done by us trying to get all of our stuff together and, and trying to obey really hard so that He'll love and accept us. That's not how it works. He reconciles us to Himself through the work of Jesus, not through our work. And here's the work of Jesus: that he lived a sinless life, and he took our sins upon himself. The scripture says, We like sheep have turned astray and gone each one to our own way. But God has laid upon him the sins of us all. And he was bruised for our transgressions, he was pierced for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace fell on him. By his stripes were healed. And Isaiah 53:10 finishes it up by saying this: And it was God's pleasure to crush Him. It doesn't please the Father to crush you and me. What pleased the Father was to send His Son from His side and Jesus come and bear our sins for us and take the judgment and condemnation that we deserved. So if you could put the gospel in a nutshell, here it is, that God treated Jesus like He lived my life. He treated Jesus like he lived my life, all my sin. He was held legally accountable before the Father for my sin, condemned and judged in my place. And then listen, through faith in Jesus, reconciled to the Father, and then listen to what it says, made holy and blameless and above reproach before God. In other words, Jesus' perfect record gets credited to me. My record gets credited to him, and he's condemned. His record gets credited to me, holy, blameless, above reproach, and I get welcomed and accepted by the Father. So we could say it like this, the gospel in a nutshell. God treated Jesus like he lived my life, so he could treat me like I lived Jesus' life. Jesus took my sin and was condemned so I could have his righteousness and be accepted. Jesus, the son of God, was treated like an enemy of God so the enemies of God could be made sons and daughters of God. This is why Jesus came. And one who's loved us like that, does he not deserve first place in our hearts? This is what he's come to do. He's come to reconcile us to the Father and we receive this, verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. How do we receive this good news of Christ? By faith in Jesus. Again, not our works, but trusting in his work for us. This is why Christ needs to be first place. Only Jesus. Why? Because of who he is and because of what he's done. But let me show you the third thing. Because the place where he is. Jesus not only revealed the Father, not only died for us, but he also was raised from the dead. Look at verse 18. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. That he was put in a tomb, and on the third day God raised him from the dead and exalted him to the highest place. He is at the right hand of the Father, and he is above and before all things in Ephesians 1.19, Paul says it like this, I want you to know the immeasurable greatness of God's power. according to the wor- That's to you who believe. It's according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and made him his head over all things and gave him to the church who is the fullness of his body, who fills all. So you see what it says about Jesus? Where is he right now? He's at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning over all things, all things under his feet, all rule, all authority, all power, all dominion, his name above every name, that is named not only in this age, but in the age to come. Philippians 2, what has the Father done? Because Jesus humbled himself, because he was obedient to the, to, to the Father to the point of death, even death on a cross, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord, the glory of God the Father. Where is Jesus? He's ruling and reigning over all things. And here's the beauty of it. That he has given head over all things to the church. Do you know what that means? That means that Jesus rules over all things for the good of his people. Listen, Jesus is in charge. You don't have to be afraid. Jesus rules and reigns over every single thing. And whatever touches you, he will turn in the end to your good. There is nothing there is nothing that could come against you that will undo his good purposes for you. The scripture says, if God did not spare his own son, will he not with him freely give you all things? You know what that means? God will give you everything you need to flourish and to be everything he dreams and intends for you to be. He's gonna give you everything you need that he deems necessary for your life and joy. He's gonna give it to you. And Christ is exalted to the highest place and he will make sure that everything that comes into your life, ultimately that touches you, will be under his good sovereign rule and reign. It will be turned ultimately for your good and growth in grace. E. Stanley Jones said it like this, goodness is on the throne and we are safe. You don't have to be afraid. If there's anything touching your life right now, anything coming against you, anything that has you riddled with anxiety, or fear, Let it all crash upon the rocks of this reality that Jesus rules and reigns and he loves you and he's for you. And nothing will touch you apart from his wisdom, goodness, grace, and purpose. This is why only Jesus, because of where he is, he rules over all things. Let me give you one last thing and we're done. The world he's going to bring. It calls him the firstborn of the dead. That means there's going to be more resurrection. Jesus, in his resurrection, showed his people and this world what the world is destined for. He is going to make all things new. He is going to reconcile all things to himself, is what it says here. He intends to regain this whole creation to make all things new. In other words, he's going to put an end one day to injustice, decay, and death. No more sin, no more suffering, no more... No more cruelty, no more oppression, no more war, no more famine, no more hurricanes, no more tsunamis, no more death, every tear wiped away. So, for those who are his followers, here's the confidence that we have that when Jesus went into the tomb and he came out of it, he brought the new creation into being. And one day, it's all going to be made new, your life included. I don't want to be the bearer of bad news, but we're all going to die. You're welcome. Unless Jesus returns first, we're all going to die. And here's the good news. Jesus, the firstborn from the dead, it means this. You're going to die. Death is going to put you in the grave. But Jesus will one day raise you. Listen, the hope of the Christian faith is not the immortality of the soul, but the resurrection of the body. And we are going to rule and reign with Christ one day. This is the world he's going to bring. Let me close with a C.S. Lewis quote. Listen to what C.S. Lewis said. In the Christian story... God descends to reascend. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity, down further still, if embryologists are right, to recapitulate in the womb, ancient and pre-human phases of life, down to the very roots and seabed of the nature he has created. But he goes down to come up again and bring the whole ruined world up with him. One has the picture of a strong man stooping lower and lower to get himself underneath some great complicated burden. He must stoop in order to lift. He must almost disappear under the load before he incredibly straightens his back and marches off with the whole mass swaying on his shoulders. Can you see that? Or one may think of a diver first reducing himself to nakedness, then glancing in midair, then gone with a splash, vanished, rushing down through green and warm water into black and cold water, down through increasing pressure into the death-like region of ooze and slime and old decay, then up again, back to color and light, his lungs almost bursting, till suddenly he breaks the surface again, holding in his hand the dripping precious thing that he went down to recover. He and it are both colored now that they've come up into this light. Down below, where it lay colorless in the dark, he lost his color too. What a picture the work of Christ to rescue this ruined world to go down into death and to rise from the dead and bring about this new creation, to bring color to our lives. Listen, he's going to make this world new again, and right now, he's already doing that. He's making us new. See, we're the beginning of all things being made new. He's making us new. Some of you know what that's like. You were you an angry person, and he's making you into a gentle person. You were a bitter person. He's making you into a forgiving person. You were an anxious person. He's making you into a peaceful person. You, you, you were a divisive person, but now he's making you into a peacemaker. You've struggled with lust, and he's yet now making you a person of purity and, and love. You struggle with greed and now he's turning you into a person of radical generosity. You, many of you in this room knows, know what it's like that when Jesus, who rose from the dead to make all things new, he's, he's making me new. He's transforming me from the inside out. This is why. This is why he, only Jesus, because he's the only one that can make us new, the only one who can truly transform us. So the one thing in the world that you must love most is that which is most lovely, Jesus. Jesus. The one thing you must glorify most is that which is most glorious, Jesus. The one thing that you should value supremely is that which is supremely valuable, and it's Jesus. Only God, as he's revealed himself in Jesus, can bear the burden of being God. Nothing else in your life can do that. And if you expect that of anything else, it's going to fail you. God has exalted Jesus above everything else in this world that you might do the same. He is the preeminent one. Make him preeminent in your life. I remember taking my my daughter when she turned 13. I took her to a Taylor Swift concert. Um, Truth be known, because I'm a closet Swifty, all right? I like Taylor Swift's music. And so I was like, hey, you're 13. How would you like to go to a Taylor Swift concert? Please say yes, please say yes, please say yes. She said yes. So I took her to a Taylor Swift concert. And man, it was amazing. She came out. She sang her first number. And at the end of that first song, she just stood at center stage. And the place went nuts. And she turned to her left. And all the left side of the Coliseum. Just went crazy, screaming, shouting, applauding. She sat there for 20 or 30 seconds, and then she turned to her right, and that side of the Coliseum drowned it out. The left side of the Coliseum, they just all went crazy. And then she looked right at us in the middle section, and our middle section was, was it just eclipsed both sides. It, there was screaming and shouting and deafening noise. I almost lost my voice. It was amazing, <laughs> amazing. And she just stood there and basked in all of it. You know what I was struck with? Just how popular... Taylor Swift is. And really how popular a lot of artists and athletes and actors are. Did you know that many of these artists, athletes, and actors are more popular than Jesus? Did you know that? They are more popular than Jesus. But there is a great difference between a person who is popular and a person who is preeminent. Jesus is preeminent. And that's a hidden reality one day. But listen closely. The scriptures are very clear that he's going to return in power and glory. That one day Jesus Christ is going to take center stage of the cosmos to the praise and shouts and acclaim and worship of men and angels. And on that day we'll realize, oh yeah, he is the most lovely. He's the most glorious. He is the supremely valuable one. And he, he is the only one that required first place in my heart? Do you you know him today? Have you ever come to that point where you realize that it's not your merit, it's not your works, it's his mercy, and you've thrown yourself upon his grace and you became a Christian. You trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And if you are a Christian today, you've got to fight like crazy to reorder your loves, to keep the preeminent one first place in your heart. You do that by not shifting from the gospel seeking Jesus, following Jesus, reading his word, coming in here to corporate gatherings. When you come together and you worship together, you know what you're doing? You are fighting together to reorder your loves, to say, I have cared more about my reputation this week than the glory and fame of Christ. I need to reorder that this morning. I've thought more about money than I have about Christ this week. I need to reorder that. I've, I've lusted after stuff more than I've desired Jesus to know Him and be like Him this week. I need to reorder that. So every week is a war to reorder your loves. To love most what's most lovely. I want to pray for your church to that end. God, thank You for this beautiful people. Thank You for this wonderful community. Thank You for the pastors that You've set here. Thank You for the partners that have joined their life with the leadership of this church. Would you make it a place that truly is about only Jesus? Make him preeminent more and more, Father, in the hearts of this community, that he might be exalted above all things in their midst and that men and women be drawn to him and find him. We pray it in Jesus' name.